phenomenon of the growth of Christianity in China is one of the most extraordinary stories of Christianity in the last hundred years. Monotheism, in a sense, is not the unique preserve of Christianity in Judaism. It's a common human perception of metaphysical reality. The Hong Kong people understood the value of the rule of law and they were attracted to the message of Jesus and the meaning of Christianity. Well, welcome to the Ask podcast, and we're still discussing this book with Greg Sheridan. We're on to chapter 10, um, The Great Wall of Heaven, a very cleverly uh, titled chapter. Um, Greg, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by China, and I'm intrigued by what your qualifications are in terms of writing about this. So you've got a fair bit of experience with China. Do you want to tell us what that is? Well, that's, uh, I guess that's true, David, although I think, you know, the point about journalism is you you write about things you're completely unqualified to write about. That's our, that's our shtick, you know. But uh, now I was, um, so I was in a sense a child of the Cold War. So I grew up concerned with Soviet and Chinese communism all the way through and tales of persecution of Christians. But in 1985, I became the first uh, ever Beijing correspondent of my newspaper. This is my bid to be a footnote in journalistic history rather than an erratum uh, note, you know. And um, well, I was sent at very short notice. The editor-in-chief came along to me. Of course, they were going to send someone else, and he fell through. And the editor-in-chief said, wonderful, lovely Englishman said to me, hello, mate, how are you? What, what, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, well, what, what have you got in mind, Les? He said, how would you like to go to China? So I actually took another week to get my affairs in order. That's the nature of journalism, of course. Opportunity comes along, you grab it. So I spent, um, uh, you know, um, a period in Beijing in 1985 uh, as a correspondent, less than a year as it turned out, but it was great to live there, wonderful time to live there because mm -hmm. China was liberalising and it was in the early stages of liberalisation, but nobody felt there was any limit to its liberalisation. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had first got involved in Asian journalism before that following the Indochinese refugees. And that took me a lot to um, to Hong Kong. And then when I got involved with, Sing with Southeast Asia, I spent a lot of time in Singapore. And I've been foreign editor of the paper since um, 1992. I was the Washington correspondent. So I was a Beijing correspondent in 85, Washington correspondent in 86 and 87. Mm. And really from about 1979, I was professionally concerned with Asia. Uh, in my different iterations. And then after I became foreign editor in 1992, I spent probably 30 or 40% of my time for the first 10 years traveling mainly in the region, mainly in Asia. So I made a lot of trips back to China and I had a lot of engagement with the broader Chinese world and especially with Chinese literature, Chinese Christians, uh, Chinese language. When I was in Beijing, I was learning Mandarin. I didn't get very far, but I could ask the cab driver where to go and make a phone call and you know, stumbled my way through to, to the right uh, to the right person and so on. It's a wonderful experience and I, I love Chinese culture and civilization. I don't like the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, um, once you've had a deep acquaintance with Chinese uh, culture, you feel in a sense partly in exile uh, when, when you're not there subsequently. I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, I, I find 
I, I feel like if, if I believed in reincarnation or whatever it was, I would feel that you are my brother from another century or something because I, I, I share your interests so much. And I, don't ask me why. Chinese culture has always fascinated me. You know, and I, I've, I've for years now, I've been reading Chinese history, um, Chinese works. I've, I've actually started to learn Mandarin. Um, I, I mean, I did try Cantonese for a while, but it was too difficult. But because I was but but, um, you know, my sister was in Beijing for a while. Chinese politics, Chinese history. So I, I really do envy you in that. Um, why did you include this in the book, though? This is a book about Christians and you've got two chapters on China. Absolutely. So one further footnote about um, loving China. One reason I think it, it appeals to you and me and to so many Westerners so much, I was greatly influenced by the, the, the most brilliant sinologist of the 20th century, a Belgian man named Pierre Rickmans, uh, who wrote under the pen name Simon Lees, uh-huh. wrote famous, wonderful books, Chinese Shadows, The Burning Forest, uh-huh. wrote a completely original translation of the Analects of Confucius, deeply religious Belgian Catholic. And um, and his love of Chinese culture and his Christian perspective and his deep literary interest, wrote a wonderful novel, The Death of Napoleon. So he really shaped my mind about uh, about China. And he was a great scholar of Chinese art and mm-hmm. literature. And um, his thesis is, one reason we find it so fascinating is because it is the most developed polar opposite of Western culture in the human experience. So it is a completely coherent, completely developed, vast culture. He even makes a case that the Analects of Confucius are the most influential book in history, although I think it comes second to second to the Bible. Mm-hmm. But you can make that case. I mean, there are as many Chinese in the world as there are Christians and so on. And the culture is completely coherent, and yet it's absolutely radically different from the West. Why did I include it in this book? Well, the... The phenomenon of the growth of Christianity in China is one of the most extraordinary stories of Christianity in the last hundred years. So at the time the communists came to power in 1949, there were maybe three or four million uh, Christians in China. Today, there is somewhere between 60 million and 120 million Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, for reasons I outline in the book, very, very difficult to get an accurate gauge on how many Christians there are in China. And sometimes Christians can inflate the number a bit, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, we like to feel like we're winning and all this sort of thing. But even if it's at the low end, say it's 60 million, well, to go from 3 million to 60 million, given the implacable opposition of the communist state at every point, I mean, there were periods where persecution was more intense of Christians and less intense, but this is one of the most uh, astonishing stories of evangelization and Christian growth uh, in the last hundred years that we've ever seen. And um, Christianity is still the only social force in China that the Communist Party cannot control. And the Communist Party really hates Christianity, mm-hmm. not because it appeals to the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Powerful interests around the world often hate Christianity for that reason. But the Chinese Communist Party hates it because it appeals to the well-educated and yeah. the thoughtful and the intelligent and the the Chinese with a lot to contribute. It also appeals to the marginalised, certainly. Mm-hmm. But the um, the embrace of Christianity by that kind of person 
and it, the way it is a completely alternative, um, you know, structure of meaning and explanation of life and so on to that offered by the Communist Party, makes the Communist Party very unhappy about it. And I think really we in the West should do more to celebrate and support Chinese Christians, and we should also draw encouragement from their courage and their example. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary because um, here in Sydney, much, much more, and and throughout Australia, um, much, much more than in the UK, I'm I'm astonished at how so many churches I go to are there. If it wasn't for the Chinese, the churches would be in decline. Particularly, Sydney Anglicans have seen this enormous. Uh, increase you know basically you can more or less guarantee that if it's a growing church there's a significant number of Chinese I mean I was recently up in a church in, in um, the northwest of Sydney which has over a thousand people coming now they've just started a Mandarin service because they have so many Chinese coming so that really is quite extraordinary incidentally in that regard I'd be interested in your view on this um, I was speaking to uh, how will I put it someone who's a diplomat and who knows the Chinese situation and the Hong Kong situation particularly well. And I said to him that there's a big move in the UK just now to enable Hong Kong uh, Chinese to come to the UK. And I've, some friends of mine back in the UK believe that this will significantly be to the advantage of the church in the UK. And this gentleman said, yes, absolutely. He said he was astonished at how many Christians were in Hong Kong. Which, yeah. you know, I mean, is, is yeah. that your experience as well? or Very much. I, I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong one way mm. or another. Everyone concerned with Asian journalism does. Um, and uh, the, the reputation and profile of Christians in Hong Kong traditionally has been very high mm -hmm. because of the schools and the hospitals mm -hmm. and the other charitable works. So when I was going there in the early 1980s to cover the refugee camp, I mean, just as you'd expect, the people in the refugee camps helping the refugees were, you know, nuns and clergymen and uh, Christian lay people and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, the Christian schools, the Christian hospitals, have very, very high reputation in Hong Kong. And uh, they are respected and admired and they have huge numbers of adherents. Um, I'm fascinated what you say about Sydney Anglicans. The same is true, of course, of... Um, all the Catholic parishes in Australia, it's not just mm -hmm. Chinese, but Asian immigrants generally, Filipinos, mm -hmm. um, you know, South Asians, Indians, Sri Lankans, and so on. Uh, and the same, of course, is true of the Pentecostal Church. Mm -hmm. uh, the Pentecostal churches all over Australia are full of, uh, full of young Chinese. Mm -hmm. And um, Hong Kong was especially interesting because uh, in the era of the Cultural Revolution from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, there was a flood of Chinese refugees to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And um, this led indeed my aforementioned friend, Pierre Rickmans, to write a very famous book, The Chairman's New Clothes, when the, without being political about it, the left in the West was saying how fabulous Chairman Mao was and this was a new society and a new paradigm and everything. Pierre was interviewing the refugees as they arrived in Hong Kong and hearing stories of famine and murder and rape and torture and persecution and, uh, you know... Um, religious figures put in cages in cathedrals and mocked by the public and so forth. And uh, Hong Kong people understood the value of the rule of law and they were attracted to the uh, message of Jesus and the meaning of Christianity. And um, uh, Christianity has a very good reputation all through China, I think, 
uh, except uh, except amongst the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, I, I can see why the Communist Party though would fear it because it's it's not controllable. I, I think it's not. I mean, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about that. I do. I should though point out as a proud Scotsman that um, you know we we. We considered Hong Kong to basically be a Scottish colony, you know. This, this, we were well. We sent bankers and doctors and you know and and pastors as well. It's funny there was a and virtually all the Chinese I knew in Scotland initially uh, in my earlier years were uh, from Hong Kong because they staffed the restaurants. I mean, Cantonese was the language, and it's only more recently that as particularly students have come. Um, let, let's stick with the the. You know, you talk about the increasing opposition and persecution within China. Um, now, I think that failed before under Chairman Mao with the Cultural Revolution. I think he he actually aided the spread of the church in some ways. But I'm, I mean, I wonder what your thoughts are on this. I I listened to a, a number of podcasts. One is a a podcast about China all the time. And then another is the uh, Spectator's ho Holy Smoke, which, which is basically um, the Catholic view of the world. Um, and they've talked a lot about the agreement between the Vatican and the Chinese Communist Party, which they regard as horrendous. And a lot of I know a lot of Chinese Catholics do. Um, but I wonder if you have any insight or any thoughts on that. Yep. So let me offer two comments, David. And of course, um, it wasn't Hong Kong, but the other wonderful popular culture representation of Scottish missionary life in China was um, Chariots of Fire. And of course. Eric Little, of course. Eric Little. And, uh, what a what a fabulous, inspiring uh, life that was. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the inheritance of Christian missionary and uh, activity in China is overwhelmingly positive, hugely mm -hmm. positive. I had a great friend, Audrey Donathorne. Um, Oxford, uh, Oxford graduate, originally an Englishwoman, who devoted her whole life to aiding Christians in China. And mm -hmm. she was born there, the daughter of missionaries. And she kept petitioning the Chinese government to award her citizenship and not to be hand racist about it. Just because she was a, a white woman, they couldn't deny her Chinese citizenship. And she used to flummox them because she's a big Margaret Rutherford kind of woman and she'd go into China with Bibles decreed about her person. And so they kind of didn't know how to handle her. She was a professor of economics. <laughs> I digress, I apologise. Yeah, now two things. One is, one reason the Communist Party hates Christianity so much is not just because it's uncontrollable, I, I agree with that, and not just because political rebellion in China often comes out of uh, religious um, associations, but for another reason. So some of the people I interview in this book argue that the Chinese Communist Party is itself best understood as a religious organization. It is a church. Uh, it, it is a monotheism. And the god of the Chinese Communist Party is the Communist Party. And this is not just a metaphor. The Chinese Communist Party does actually have, in the full Marxist sense, its own comprehensive metaphysics. It mm -hmm. seeks to provide a complete explanation for the meaning of life from birth to death. It seeks to provide existential purpose for the lives of Chinese people. The purpose is to advance the interests of the party, complete the mm -hmm. proletarian revolution and advance the interests of the state. Xi Jinping is a very orthodox Marxist-Leninist Mao Zedong thought guy. Marxism-Leninism are the eternal principles of 
of uh, Marxism, and Mao Zedong thought is the attempt to apply those eternal principles to China. It's very scriptural, and it cannot abide an alternative um, uh, explanation of life, which mm -hmm. doesn't acknowledge the centrality of the Communist Party. It's weaker on Marxist economics than it used to be, although it is reviving the central place of the state, but it is deeply committed to the Leninist sense of the right structure of society where the party is the possessor of all power and the vanguard of the revolution. Now, we might regard this as the most dreary gobbledygook in the history of the world, but the Chinese Communist Party not only propagates it, I think it really believes it, mm -hmm. certainly at the top, just as, you know, kings and queens believed in the divine right of, of kings to, to rule and so on. So it regards the universal Christian church as a mortal enemy because the universal Christian church will not recognise the absolute supremacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, Chinese Christians, it strikes me, are very much like the early Christians in the, in the New Testament. They're not looking for a fight. They're not trying to overthrow the government. They're not looking for martyrdom. They're very brave, but they're certain they don't want to be martyrs. They, they want to just lead normal, decent lives, and if they can, spread the word about Jesus. But because within that, they don't recognise, and they're happy to recognise the civil authority of the government, but they don't recognise the transcendent, metaphysical, existential authority of the Communist Party. So the Communist Party regards that as a mortal threat. Now then, David, just to offer a comment on this very vexatious Vatican uh, deal with the Chinese Communist Party. So I've um, interviewed the Vatican Foreign Minister about this. Oddly, I can't think why I didn't put that in the book, but uh, you know, it must have just been a sort of a, an early senior moment. Um, and uh, I'm sympathetic with all the Catholics who are unhappy about it and everything and say, don't betray the underground church and all the rest of it. But I do think, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of... Uh, profoundly anti-communist. There's not one speck of sympathy for communism in me at all. I, I, I think, you know, Marx talked of, of the idiocy of rural life. I think that just showed the idiocy of Marx. And I, I think every word that Marx said, including and and the and but, was a lie. And there's, there's not one speck of me that has the slightest sympathy for it. But here's the thing. The Catholic Church, I think, it suffers particularly because it's not able to ordain priests. And Catholic Christianity is a bit different from other versions of Christianity because it's very hard to lead the Catholic life without the sacraments. And it's very hard to get the sacraments without priests. Now, the documents of Vatican II are very clear. State authorities should have no role in the appointment of bishops. But it is also, in fact, the truth that in many dictatorships, the church reaches an uneasy compromise where in order just to be allowed to exist, it allows the government a certain veto over... The government can't appoint the bishops, but it can veto bishops that it doesn't like. Now, this can have sometimes wonderful... God's providence can work in marvellous ways. Um, pope John Paul II, who I think was the greatest pope of the last 500 years or, or you know, the greatest pope in modern times, and he was... He was the fifth choice or something to be Archbishop of Krakow because the communists kept rejecting choice after choice after choice that the Vatican offered them. And finally, they agreed on this guy uh, because they thought, well, Wojtyla, he's a playwright, he's a poet, he's obviously a dreamy intellectual, he's of no consequence, he won't cause us any trouble. And look what happened. 
you know, he he rent the communist world asunder and um, and was the most, as I say, in my view, the most significant pope in hundreds of years. Now, it's still a bad thing if the government gets to a point, if the government gets to veto bishops. But I, and I'm, and I'm not starry-eyed about the Vatican here. You know, the Vatican has presided over so many scandals, financial and otherwise. I'm happy to criticise the Vatican uphill and down dale. But against my instincts, I've come to understand what they're trying to do with this deal. They're just trying to get to a stage where Catholics can live reasonably unpersecuted and where the church, the Catholic church, can function by consecrating bishops and ordaining priests. Now, it's also the case that since this deal was signed, the government has not led them consecrate many bishops and not led them ordain many priests. And the Chinese Communist Party wants out of this deal greater control of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church out of this deal wants less persecution of its members and more priests. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm a little more sympathetic to them than I would have been before I looked into this issue properly and a little more sympathetic to them than I expected to be. Well, that's fascinating. Of course, I've got an obvious solution for you. You could all become Protestants. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Point that out to him. You know. Point that out to him, yeah. Look, I, well, I'll say to him, look, here's the deal. Anglicans in England can become Catholics if you let Catholics in China become Protestant. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting. Let me, you know, coming back to the influence of Christianity on, on China in other ways as well. Um, I was in a church in, in Scotland, Robert Murray McShane, and uh, he had somebody came to his church called William Burns and there was a revival broke out and all the rest of it. But Burns was a real character and he came to China and he was the first person and there was another much more famous man called Hudson Taylor. Um, and he did, he, he moved, he moved out of the, uh, the communes, if you like. And he actually wore Chinese dress, learned Chinese. And, you know, I think he was a very charismatic character but he felt that he hadn't been all that successful. Now, where that story comes in is, I was speaking to the writer, I can't even know how you pronounce her name, Wan Chang, you know, the author of Wild Swans? Um, yes. And uh, to me, a, a marvellous book on Chairman Mao, and also a wonderful book that I learned so much, uh, and this was why I was speaking to her, The Empress Dowager, because I was hearing her give a talk on it. And I asked her a question about the influence of Christianity on China, and she said this, and, and I would want, want your thoughts on this. She said, in the 19th century... Christianity did not succeed in reaching the ordinary people overall, but it did succeed in making all the modern institutions of China because she argued that the Empress Dowager, for example, her, her chief advisor, economic advisor for the railways and so on, was a Northern Irish Christian, um, that the, the, the Christians had an enormous influence on hospitals, education, women's rights, and so on. And by the time it came to the, the, the 20th century, she argued that the whole infrastructure, the whole seed and stuff was there for there to be a growth of Christianity. And that there was a genuinely, a, genu a general rather positive view of Christianity. So it was just such an interesting perspective for me because she said seed that was basically sown in the 19th century came to fruition in the, in the 20th century. 
And I think she was commenting, not as a Christian, I don't think she's a Christian. She was just making that as an observation uh, as a Chinese historian. And um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And it's analogous to the situation we were talking about in Hong Kong. So I think about 10% or a bit more, I mean, don't quote me on that figure because I haven't checked it lately, of mm-hmm. Hong Kong people were Christians, which is not the overwhelming majority of the society. But Christianity was held in tremendously high regard and um, to have gone to a Christian school and so on was a very good thing. Mm-hmm. What you're, um, the woman you're quoting is absolutely right, but it actually, in fact, it goes back much further than that. So I would say Christianity had a success and a failure in China. Christianity was very successful with the elites. Mm-hmm. It didn't reach out as far as we would have hoped with the ordinary people. This was partly because the Chinese government didn't want it to. So it goes back much earlier even than the 19th century. The first big uh, episode of Christianity in China was Matteo Ricci and the Jesuit missionaries in the 16th century. And they were the first, Ricci, I think, was the first Westerner to learn Mandarin. And the emperor and his court liked these Jesuits because of how learned they were. They understood astronomy. They understood technology. They understood languages. Now, the Chinese court was also extremely learned. These were not uh, barbarians. These were very, very learned men, the Mandarin class. And the Mandarin class found the Jesuits absolutely fascinating. And in fact, they saw them, and this is an, an exact echo of what you're talking about the 19th century, as an element of modernization. So they saw Christianity and its intellectual substance both its technological intellectual substance, but also its metaphysical technical, uh, you know, intellectual substance as elements of, of modernity. But they were very cautious that this not lead to a mass following. And in the book, I, I quote a dialogue between one of the emperors and a successor to Matteo Ricci, some 17th century Jesuit uh, missionaries. And the emperor really accuses them of the same thing that the Greeks accused St. Paul of. He said, you are preaching a foreign god. Uh-huh. He said, I, I respect you and I allow your church to operate and so on. But what is to become of us, by which he means himself, he uses the royal plural. What is to become of us if everybody follows your religion and we are no longer, meaning himself, the emperor, no longer the mediator between heaven and earth. We are no longer the son of heaven. Uh, we are no longer the object of our citizens' loyalty and love, but this foreign god that you're talking about is the is the object of uh, of everyone's love and affection. And the Jesuits, they can't answer this because there is no good answer for a dictator to that question. You know, the the mm-hmm. answer is you're right. The people won't see you as a, as a deity incarnate or a special mediator between heaven and earth. They'll see it uh, as something else. But nonetheless, the ethos. Uh, of rationality, of um, science. So Christianity is the great friend of science. It's the great friend of justice. There was a tremendous early theological argument about whether the Chinese practice of ancestor worship could be um, reconciled to the Christian idea of the communion of saints. So the Vatican had a debate about this that went on for hundreds of years because Ritchie and his successors thought there's so much in Chinese civilization which is already, as it were, sympathetic to Christianity. So the Analects of Confucius are full of splendid ethics, um, 
there, there's a lack in the Analects of Confucius, which is the lack of God, but they are full of splendid ethics. Honour your father and your mother. Moderation in all things. The wise ruler has the mandate of heaven, but he forfeits the mandate of heaven if he rules unjustly and persecutes, persecutes uh, his people. In the discussion I quote between the emperor and the, uh, and the Jesuits, he says, you know, Buddha gives us everything we need. Buddha, by then, Buddhism was a big deal in China. And he said, Buddha is fine. The Jesuits are saying, no, Buddha is not really God, you know. And uh, he says, well, look, you Westerners can have your God. We Chinese will have ancestor worship, the emperor and Buddha for anything left over. Uh, and that's good enough. And you guys, so long as you restrict yourselves to the court and intellectual circles and so on, I'll let you operate, but I'm not going to let you convert the nation. Now, Protestant missionaries and Catholic missionaries both did produce some wonderful mass conversions and popular followings and so on. But the Chinese state was remarkably effective in taking from Christianity what it wanted, which is good patterns of organisation and modern ways of thinking, but rejecting what it didn't want, which was mass allegiance by the Chinese people. And mm -hmm. uh, that that is a, a theme common in Christianity, the accusation of preaching foreign gods, but it's a theme which has been running in Chinese history since the 16th century. And Xi Jinping's abuse of Christians today is very similar to the emperor's discussion 300 years ago. Yeah, the irony is, I mean, we're going to come back to this next time because you've got a, another chapter. So chapter 11 will continue to discuss you know, some of the examples you give. And uh, I also want to talk about uh, what I was told are called ABCs, nothing to do with the television station just or radio, you know, just Australian-born Chinese. But um, you, you've you've hit on something there fascinating. So uh, I'll say one more thing and then you, you can finish off for us. Um, I was intrigued by, is it Jeremy Barmay's, uh, the Australian Sinologist saying, you quote this in the book, China has a concept of a monotheistic ent entity from very early on. And I, I have a theory, um, and I, th I, I think I can demonstrate it in most of the cultures I know, <clears throat> that rather than the, the, the common view of, say, Dawkins, who doesn't really know very much, but has he has this idea that we became polytheists, then monotheists, and now atheists is just one step better. I actually think that most ancient cultures were fundamentally monotheist, then became polytheist, often to do with politics and various other things. Um, and that, that it, it's fascinating throughout the world how there seems to be uh, uh, the fundamentals of a universal ethic, which seems to be based on a monotheistic view of a one creator God. And I was utterly astounded in reading some older Chinese philosophy, even be, you know before Confucius, at how this this concept of uh, a one creator is not alien to Chinese philosophy or Chinese culture. And in fact, when the Jesuits and the Protestant missionaries and others were coming, they were tapping into something that was already there rather than bringing something entirely new. I mean, they were bringing maybe a different expression or whatever. I mean, do you think that that's a valid way of looking at things? Because I, I just can't explain why the Chinese are so open to the Christian gospel. I've never met such an open group of people. And I don't think it is just a reaction against communism. I, I think it's also tapping into something within the culture. Well, David, I, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. And um, I think this theory about the monotheism behind polytheism 
is profoundly true and more generally even than China. I mean, my favourite book, I had to choose a favourite book of all time uh, not so long ago, and I chose um, Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. And he makes this case very strongly. Most polytheisms are in fact monotheistic, so that um, in Hinduism, there is a monotheistic tradition of Hinduism. So Hinduism has a million gods or something, but there is also a, a, an idea that behind this, there is a great spirit who uh -huh. created everything. Native American tradition has the same. You know, the moon is a god, the sun is a god, the clouds are interacting with the moon and so on. But behind all this, there's the great spirit. And often the great spirit is kind of unknowable to societies which haven't experienced revelation, but they, they understand, they know deeply, in my view, deeply imprinted on the human DNA is the sense of God, really God, the monotheistic God. Mm -hmm. And uh, But people are sometimes, the wisest people in, in other traditions are sometimes quite modest about their speculations. They say there is a great spirit, there is a creator. So even in this dialogue between the... Um, between the emperor and the Jesuit missionaries that I quote at some length, which I took from Jeremy Barmay's wonderful um, China history uh, blog. Uh, Barmay, I think, is the second most brilliant sinologist I've ever met. He was a student of Pierre Rickman's, and I'd say second only to Pierre Rickman's. He's the most brilliant analyzer of... And he, unlike Pierre Rickman's, is not a Christian at all, I think, but but reaches a lot of the same conclusions um, because he's a great scholar. And... Um, in this dialogue, the emperor himself advances a Buddhist monotheism. So, as you know, Buddhism, in a sense, doesn't even really believe in God, you know, mm -hmm. but, but the emperor takes monotheism from Buddhism to advance it against the Christian monotheism. So part of what he's saying is we actually don't need your monotheism. We don't need you Christians to tell us about monotheism because behind the historical uh, creature of Buddha is the great Buddha. The emperor calls it the great Buddha, who is the author of all things. And I comment in the book, the emperor is really giving his own version of natural law, um, intuitive, instinctive monotheism. Now, he's got a particular wrinkle on it. He's saying, because we already have monotheism, we don't need your Christianity. I agree with you, David, that that Chinese monotheism makes Chinese open to the Christian message, the distinctive, explicit, clear monotheism of Christianity. But I, I agree with you further. I, I just couldn't agree with you more. Dawkins is so dishonest in his treatment of these things, and very few polytheist traditions really are closed off to the idea of monotheism. Sometimes, by the way, sometimes I think we overclaim what the Jewish, Christian and Islam, you know, we say the three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. In fact, most religions are monotheistic. The Sikh religion certainly is explicitly monotheistic. The Zoroastrianism is, I mean, monotheism. So I believe Christianity is true, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and all the rest of it. Absolutely. But monotheism, in a sense, is not the unique preserve of Christianity and Judaism. It's a kind of common human perception of metaphysical uh, reality. And because the Chinese thought about these things in such depth and in such a sophisticated way, um, it's sometimes wrongly said the Chinese were the only great civilization not to invent a god. 
that's quite untrue, of course. Yeah. Uh, they had a lot of um, daily religious practice, but they also had this deep sense of the numinous and the transcendent and indeed of the monotheistic. Um, it's there It's there for the looking. Of course, the Communist Party, you know, puts a completely different wrinkle on this altogether uh, and certainly wants to expunge all that. But, of course, the Communist Party, although ruthless, is very confused. While I was there as a correspondent, they rehabilitated Confucius because the first 40 years of the revolution, they thought Confucius was um, uh, a, a, an example of retrograde feudalism. And then they realised actually actually they really need Chinese national cultural inheritance. So they rehabilitated Confucius and Confucius became, you know, a precursor of um, the egalitarian revolution and, uh, and all that sort of thing. But um, I do think deep within Chinese tradition is great human wisdom and not least that openness to monotheism. So I agree with you absolutely about that. Yeah, and that's the, the, the doctrine, if you like, of, of common grace. And also it's something that both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien pick up on because they basically say that every story is a pointer towards the great story. Um, mm. And that, you know, the, the, the whole idea is that, you know, you had this uh, humanity made in the image of God. There was this fall away from that and that actually throughout the world there's there's been this gradual drift and then Christ coming brings people back. So I would argue that, that the monotheism of... Well, you certainly had the Zoroastrians as well, but the Jews and you know Christians and Muslims and so on is actually not something that's new or a development that's come in. It's a restoration to to the ultimate. And I think if that is true, then we shouldn't be surprised at the fact that there is something within uh, Chinese cultures because Chinese people are human. I mean. Uh, at the extreme Darwinian end, I, I read some people in the 19th century who professed to be Christians who said, well, actually, you know, the Chinese were not really descended from Adam or not part of the human race and whatever. Well, yeah, biblically, they they are. And I mean, it's fascinating. We'll come on to this next um, next week. You've got if, the chapter, if God is not Chinese, he's not God. I have a suspicion that the 21st century is going to be the century where we see the shift in the church, well, we've already seen it from the West to China, particularly, also probably Africa. But we'll discuss that next time, Greg. Thank you. And by the way, I mean, I just like it when you go, I completely agree with everything you say. You're such a wise man. Very disturbing <laughs> for your career, David, but uh, yes. thank you so much.